Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. Middle class is a concept freighted with meaning in the American experience. Somewhere between poor and rich, a large segment of the U.S. population believes it resides in the middle class. But middle class is also a global phenomenon, and this segment of people is growing worldwide. With all of the attendant challenges and opportunities that this increased prosperity brings, here in the studio today to offer his expert insights and analysis about what he calls in a new paper the unprecedented expansion of the global middle class is Homi Karas. He is a senior fellow and co-director of the Global Economy and Development Program here at Brookings and has been an advisor to the UN Secretary General on the post-2015 development agenda. His most recent book is The Last Mile in Ending Extreme Poverty, of which he is a co-editor. Stay tuned in this episode for a new installment of What's Happening in Congress with Molly Reynolds. She reviews the different investigative options available to Congress in the inquiry into Russia's involvement in the 2016 election. She also describes the consequences of all the attention to this matter on Republicans' legislative agenda. For real-time expert commentary on the Trump administration, subscribe and listen to our 5 on 45 podcast. And now, on with the interview. Homie, welcome back to the Brookings Cafeteria. Thank you, Fred. I reviewed the tape and realized you have been on a couple other times. You were on about six months ago to talk about globalization issues in the presidential election. And then in October of 2015, you were here with John MacArthur to talk about ending rural hunger and reaching the UN Sustainable Development Goals. So I encourage listeners to go back and listen to those excellent episodes as well. We're going to talk about your paper on the unprecedented expansion of the global middle class. So let's start with terminology. What is the middle class? Well, the middle class doesn't actually have an exact agreed-upon definition, and it's used by many people in different ways. The term class suggests something about sociology, really, and many people have thought about the middle class in political terms and sociological terms of people who feel that their interests somehow coincide and that they're different from either the working class or the rich class. That's not the way in which I am using the middle class here. I'm much more concerned with the economics of the middle class. And so really, I'm using the middle class as a way of defining a group of people who are uh, rich enough that they are reasonably secure from falling into poverty, rich enough that they can start to afford some consumer durables, maybe even a car, but certainly a motorcycle and refrigerator and uh, things like that. But at the same time, not so rich that they can simply buy anything that they happen to want. So we've used this as a way of defining a group of people wherever they live in the world, So it's what we call an absolute definition of the middle class as opposed to a relative definition of the middle class. So a relative definition would just say, well, the middle class is the people in the middle of the income distribution of any country, regardless of how rich or poor they are. That's not what we are saying. We're saying the middle class is this group of people who can essentially afford some luxuries and they're making choices about what they buy rather than just buying the bare necessities or anything they want. You've been studying this phenomenon for many years. What can you say about the size of the global middle class I mean, in terms of numbers? Well, today we probably have upwards of 3 billion people in the global middle class, so 3.2 billion people. 
And that's a really very large number when you think that the middle class is a very recent phenomenon. In the 19th century, the middle class essentially was zero. At the beginning of the 19th century, you either had people who were really quite poor, mostly peasants, or you had royalty and nobility. So you had the rich and the poor, but there was no middle. And so the middle class started to become a really significant phenomenon during the 20th century, and particularly in the second half of the 20th century. And it reached about a billion people by somewhere around 1975 or so. But what's really extraordinary is that from that start, it's now got to 3.2 billion people, many of whom are now in emerging economies of the world rather than Europe and North America and Japan. So it's approaching roughly half the world's population, too, and it continues to grow. And in your research, you're seeing it grow faster than it ever has been growing, right? That's right. And in fact, I think that in uh, three or four years, we'll probably see the middle class becoming a majority of the world's population for the first time ever. And that, to me, is a you know fairly significant tipping point. I think we're used to thinking of the world as having very, very large numbers of poor people. Actually, it's going to be a majority middle class world. And there's a lot of implications of that that we'll get into in a minute. But I want to ask you also, how would you measure this growth, the size of the middle class in terms of its spending relative to the spending around the world? So the middle class currently is spending around 35 trillion US dollars per year. To put that in perspective, rich people, people above the middle class, if you will, are spending about $11 trillion a year, and poor people are spending about $8 trillion per year. So the middle class is actually the group of people that dominates consumer spending. And as we know, consumer spending is a very important driver of economic growth in almost all countries. One thing I think is really fascinating with this kind of report and other reports at Brookings is the process by which you do the research, how you arrive at these numbers. So how do you measure the global middle class? Where do you get these numbers? Well, it's a little painstaking. We have household surveys, which are conducted by national statistical offices in almost all countries. So we collected surveys from 165 different countries that represent about 98% of the world's population. And from those surveys, you can get estimates of the distribution of income in every country. And then we define the middle class as being people with incomes between 11 and $110 in what's called 2011 purchasing power parity dollars. So it's a fixed range. And country by country, we look at the survey data and make calculations and identify how many people are in that range and what their spending is and then add them all up. So are there countries that actually don't do household surveys that are not part of this? There are. So, for example, a country like Saudi Arabia is not part of this. North Korea is not part of this. A few small islands are not part of this. But as I say, we cover 98% of the world's population. So it's a uh, reasonable representation of what's going on globally. Okay, so let's dive into what this means. You've written about, quote, significant environment and social implications of a larger middle-class population, what are these implications? Well, one of the things that people 
worry about is that while a larger middle class is obviously very good for the people who are entering the middle class from a state of poverty or near poverty, a middle class is also a consumer class. In fact, we define it as really being a consumer class. So what some people have been asking and wondering is, well, what does this then mean for the global commitment to try to reduce carbon emissions? Because, you know, and uh, will an expanding middle class mean that our efforts to reduce carbon emissions are doomed? So one of the things that I was trying to uh, do is to start to ask this question by looking a little bit more carefully at what is the carbon footprint of a typical middle class family and how does that evolve over time? One of the things that we found with that is that the middle class is associated with a movement of people from rural areas to urban areas. So the middle class tends to be much more urbanized. And at the same level of income, urban households actually have a lower carbon footprint than rural households, partly because being in cities, they tend to spend much less on transport, which is very energy intensive. So that's some offset, if you will, to the higher emissions that come from their additional consumption. But really, it does suggest that if we're going to have a world with a much uh, larger middle class, we have to really be sure that we get smart cities, meaning that we get cities where these households are living to be places where the carbon footprint is sharply lower. And that means urban design, land use planning, public transport systems that are effective, good access to various kinds of services, building standards with good climate efficiency and uh, all the rest of it. And it's only by really taking charge of the urban environment that we'll be able to balance having a larger middle class and not growing carbon emissions at the same time. Another phenomenon that comes to mind as the population grows and also as consumption increases is the possibility of increased competition for resources like food and land and water. Do you see the possibility of increased conflict over these resources? Well, actually, one of the positive implications of a larger middle class, which is sometimes overlooked, is its impact on the demographic trajectory of the world. So we sometimes think of population as growth as just being something that is going to happen no matter what. It turns out that that's quite a faulty assumption. And when you look at the range of projections for global population in, uh, say, 2100, you get quite a sizable difference. And there are some people who think that the global population is going to stabilize at about 9 billion people compared to roughly 7.5 today. Others who think it will continue to uh, go up to perhaps 11 billion people. The difference between those kinds of projections really has to do with different assumptions about fertility and how many children an average woman is going to have. And it turns out that that assumption about fertility depends in turn on whether women are better educated and have jobs and whether they are marrying later or not. All of those things are related to whether these women enter into the middle class because when they are educated, when they do have jobs, 
they in turn invest in the education of their children and their daughters and fertility rates tend to drop quite markedly. So from that perspective, a thriving middle class is extremely good for the world because it'll probably mean that we will end up with a world of maybe 9 billion people rather than 11 billion people. And that competition for resources that you talked about will be correspondingly less. Let's take a short break here for Molly Reynolds and what's happening in Congress. My name is Molly Reynolds, and I'm a fellow in governance studies here at the Brookings Institution. It's been a busy few weeks here in Washington between the firing of FBI Director James Comey, new revelations relating to Russian interference in the 2016 election, and the naming of former FBI Director Robert Mueller to lead the investigation into that involvement. All these developments have had consequences for Congress and its agenda. As more information about Russian involvement in the 2016 election has emerged, Members of Congress on both sides of the aisle have advocated for a range of different investigative options, both inside and outside of the chamber. Republican leaders in the House and Senate have advocated for their respective chambers' existing committees to handle the job. Many Democrats, and even a few Republicans, however, have called for a more robust fact-finding investigation, either in the form of a select committee comprised of members of Congress, or an independent commission consisting of outside experts. Congress can choose to create a select committee on its own, But establishing an independent commission would require either President Trump's signature on legislation doing so, or a sufficient majority in both houses to override the president's veto. Many Democrats in Congress were also calling for a special counsel to lead the Justice Department's investigation. And while the department did so this week, it's important to remember that Congress's job in this situation is different than the executive branch's. Congress has a public-facing responsibility that the executive branch does not, And so while many members welcome the appointment of a special counsel in principle and praise the selection of Mueller specifically, the selection does not mean that Congress, especially the majority party Republicans, are off the hook. A series of important decisions about how to handle the investigation still remain, especially since congressional oversight of the executive branch is often less aggressive when the same party controls both Congress and the White House. Beyond specific choices about how to handle the investigation, Congressional Republicans are also confronting the possible consequences for their overall legislative agenda of the Russia investigation and related events. To date, Republicans' legislative accomplishments in 2017, conforming Neil Gorsuch to the Supreme Court and Trump administration nominations, and rolling back regulations promulgated in the last months of the Obama administration, have all involved simple majority votes in the Senate. Republicans hope to use similar filibuster-proof procedures to enact a health care bill and potentially tax legislation, But beyond that, any other legislative agenda items, though some uncertainty remains about what they may be, will need cooperation from at least some Senate Democrats. As Democrats make decisions about whether and in what ways to work with Republicans on certain must-pass legislation, including the fiscal year 2018 spending bills and a forthcoming measure to raise the debt limit, they will be doing so in the shadow of the political realities generated by the investigation into the Trump administration and congressional Republicans' handling of it. It's not just about the need to compromise across party lines, however. As we saw with Republicans' experience with the health care bill this spring, the president can play an important role in helping to mitigate differences within his party on major legislation. Political science research suggests that presidents are more successful at getting members of Congress to take votes favored by the executive but potentially unpopular with their constituents 
when the president himself is popular, as he can provide an important political cover. The longer the Russia investigation persists, the harder it may become for congressional Republicans to rely on the White House for help closing legislative deals. At the end of the day, Congress is made up of individual representatives and senators and the people who work for them. Time and energy spent on one issue, whether it's a piece of legislation, an investigation, or something else, is time and energy not spent elsewhere. Add in the particular rhythms and demands of the congressional calendar, including unforgiving legislative deadlines like the end of the fiscal year, and you end up with an institution that has only so much bandwidth. Right now, some of that is being taken up not with Republicans' long-held legislative priorities, but with events beyond their control. And that's what's happening in Congress. And now back to the interview. All right, so we've covered the impact on the carbon footprint and on population growth, both of which seem counterintuitive but could have positive outcomes. What about the effect of the growing middle class on issues like government capacity, governance, delivery of services as these people urbanize more and more as they consume more goods and services, they're going to need better, bigger, more government. What's the story there? So a lot of people have been hoping that a larger middle class will result in more democracy. And with more democracy, you will also have governments that are more responsive to the needs of their population and uh, deliver more services. It turns out that empirically, that's a very weak relationship if it exists at all. And we've not found systematic evidence that that happens. Instead, what we find is that there are two offsetting factors. The middle class wants the government to give them lots of services. And the kinds of services that we're talking about are things like pensions, free university, public housing, low-cost housing, basic education, universal health coverage, these kinds of things. That's what the middle class wants. But at the same time, they don't want to pay for it. They're very averse to taxes. And so in most societies, you have this trade-off and a balance that needs to be struck between how much do you tax the middle class in order to have the money to provide these services. And the way that that balance plays out country to country, it tends to be quite different. So in some countries, you do have a middle class really driving a process of you know, more taxes, more services, and that tends to happen in places where governments are more capable. But in places where governments are less capable, the middle class resists taxes, resists giving the government more uh, resources, and that in turn tends to reduce the ability of those economies to prosper and the size of the middle class. You have a couple of very interesting historical discussions in the paper, one of which you've alluded to, and that's the rise of the middle class, the birth of the middle class of the 19th century. I believe it came out of an experience in Britain. Another one, though, that bears on the topic that we've just started talking about has to do with the parallel rise of government services with the middle class in developed countries, such as the United States and others. But that's not exactly what's happening with the rise of the middle class in the developing world. Can you talk about that? Yes. So in many of today's advanced economies, some of these programs in Germany, they introduced universal basic health coverage at the end of the 19th century. In the United States, they introduced the Social Security Act just before the war. What's called the welfare state often emerged 
as a uh, way of providing fairly universal benefits across the population in advanced countries. What's happening in developing countries today and these emerging economies is that their programs tend to be much more fragmented. And actually their programs are skewing more towards people who are already in the middle class rather than to the population that perhaps needs government assistance most. So, for example, many countries have subsidized pensions, as I uh, mentioned, or free universities. A few poor people live long enough to get the pension and few of them actually have formal sector jobs that make them eligible for a pension. So they don't really benefit that much from these kinds of programs. Their children are not going to the free public universities. So you do have some tension in today's emerging economies of the middle class seeking to capture more and more of these public services for things that they want and not supporting services that would really benefit the poor of their countries. And that is perhaps leading to a reduction in the rate at which inequality in these countries is reduced. So we still have in many of these countries quite high differences between the rich and the poor with the middle in between in a way that was not happening in advanced economies in the uh, 20th century. Well, that begs a new question, and that is, does middle-class growth happen sort of organically in a country, or is it helped along, is it encouraged, or is it thwarted by government policies? I think you can look to the U.S. experience, especially post-World War II, where there were a lot of very specific government policies, like the GI Bill, that helped create a post-World War II economic boom and home ownership and expanding middle class. So what are emerging economy governments and societies doing or not doing in terms of facilitating the growth of middle class in their countries? So I think you've put your finger on it, which is that the middle class emerges out of some basic economic forces, but the government can do a lot with public policy to facilitate and accentuate and augment these trends. So it's not causing the trend, but it can certainly help it. And the kinds of things that governments do are first and foremost really is uh, to uh, provide decent education. Almost all of the middle class is earning their money from labor incomes, and those labor incomes require them to have the kind of skills to be able to have good professional jobs. A lot of the middle class now is comprised of teachers and nurses and doctors and professionals, civil servants who work in government, as well as people in formal manufacturing industry and other sectors. They all need skills, so education is massively important. Home ownership is massively important. So what governments do in terms of tax policies, land use regulations, the development of mortgage markets, as well as the provision of so-called low-cost housing, certainly for people who are just entering into the middle class. There are lots of these kinds of things. Security, personal security, is actually another very important function of government. You do not get a middle class that uh, survives and thrives without a basic security. Gender equality tends to be uh, very important. Almost all uh, societies where you have a rapid expansion of the middle class 
are societies where you have the emergence of two-income households, where both the husband and wife are working, at least for a period of time, to build up some initial capital. In societies where you have very low rates of female labor force participation rates, you tend to have much, much smaller middle classes. So these are some of the things that governments are doing in uh, different places. So let's look back down the income scale for this next question. And it relates back to work that you and a lot of Brookings colleagues have done about ending extreme poverty. I referenced your book, The Last Mm -hmm. Mile. So as the global middle class is expanding, does that mean that the proportion of poor people in the world is falling? Yes, it does. And in fact, the only way that the middle class can expand is when people become near middle class. And that often requires very substantial government efforts to get them out of poverty and essentially into the formal economy. The economic forces that will help people to emerge out of the middle class can't work if people aren't actually participating in the formal economy. So they need to be helped there. And a lot of what we talk about elsewhere at Brookings is what are the kinds of things that governments can do and the safety nets that they can provide to connect people into the formal economy so they then have a chance to become middle-class households. So in the conclusion of your paper, one of the points that you bring up is the potential that the, as you say, the political narrative in the world can be distorted into one of, quote, colliding interests between the middle class in emerging economies and those in advanced economies. So you're positing a clash between middle class groups in the different kinds of economies. Can you talk about what that means for the future? Well, I think that sometimes people have discussed this phenomenon as uh, jobs going from the U.S., say, to China, and that these are good jobs and middle-class jobs. I think that that's been an unfortunate narrative and one that isn't really supported by the evidence. What the evidence is actually showing is that as the middle class in Asia in particular starts to expand, it generates a growth dynamic in Asia which is self-supporting, and the whole rest of the world benefits from that because they're able then to also export their goods and services to this emerging middle class. Now, it happens in different sectors. It requires a certain transition in every economy, both the emerging economies and the advanced economies, as they sort through which sectors they are most efficient at producing. But the end point is actually one where a larger middle class is good for everyone because of the expansion in economic activity that takes place. And so, you know, right now as we speak, there'd been a great deal of talk about how trade, global trade, has been not doing so well. It turns out that trade in Asia is actually starting to recover quite well. And I think that that's linked to this phenomenon of a uh, large and very rapidly expanding Asian middle class, which is demanding all kinds of different goods and services, much of which is being provided by the rest of the region, but also increasingly by other countries as well. And so I look forward to a uh, period where we start to understand that many of the middle class jobs in advanced economies are actually linked to the emergence of middle-class jobs in uh, developing countries and are supporting those. So where do you take this research next? 
well, these are big trends and we have to see how they play out. I think that one phenomenon is going to be to see how the middle class in each emerging economy actually starts to influence its own politics and to try to ensure, I think, that they don't feel in turn threatened by other countries because if the emerging middle class also suddenly feels that their interests are better served by protectionist policies, then we run a risk that across the world the big political forces will start to move against globalization. We definitely are uh, of the view that we can have a better globalization rather than reduced globalization and that that would be good for the world. And so I'm continuing to see whether the evidence supports this concept of a better globalization and what that might look like. Well, Homi, I want to thank you once again for sharing your time and expertise today. Thank you, Fred. You can find the paper, The Unprecedented Expansion of the Global Middle Class, and learn more about Homi Karas and his research on our website, brookings.edu. Hey, listeners, want to ask an expert a question? You can by sending an email to me at bcp at brookings.edu. If you attach an audio file, I'll play it on the air. And I'll get an expert to answer and include it in an upcoming episode. Thanks to all of you who have sent in questions already. And that does it for this edition of the Brookings Cafeteria brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network. Follow us on Twitter at Policy Podcasts. My thanks to audio engineer and producer Gaston Ribeiro, with assistance from Mark Holscher. Vanessa Sauter is the producer. Bill Finan does the book interviews. And design and web support comes from Jessica Pavone, Eric Abalahin, and Rebecca Weiser. And thanks to David Nassar and Richard Fawal for their support. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on iTunes and listen to it in all the usual places. Visit us online at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.